It's Friday, January 20th, and you are listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whelan, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whelan, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whelan is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California On Your Mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen, and Happy New Year. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, let's start off by talking about California's unusual rainy season. In the past months, uh, an estimated 32 million gallons of water were dumped in the state over the past month. Uh, the storms have wrought destruction across the state, including in Santa Cruz, where President Biden toured the wrecked uh, Capitola Pier yesterday. Uh, Bill, your California in Your Mind web column this week um, focuses on how much water from these rains are being stored. Uh, not so much, you explained. For example, 94% of the water passed through the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta has made it to the sea rather than being captured in a reservoir. Uh, there is a proposed sites reservoir on the west side of the Sacramento Valley, which is scheduled to be completed in 2030. This is projected to be serve the needs of 5 million homes or half a million acres of farmland. Um, but in some, Bill, what are the short and long-term prospects of California improving in the area of water capture? Uh, well, Jonathan, the good news is to the extent that California is in, it's still in a drought condition. And keep in mind, California is in this very odd situation right now where there's both a drought uh, declaration in place and also a flood declaration in place. So uh, talk about gassing and breaking at the same time. But uh, you look around the state right now and you see that the drought conditions, uh, we're still in droughts, but the drought's gone from severe to mild. So we're still behind. But uh, our reservoirs have done a lot of catching up here. Many of them are about halfway full now. Uh, but the challenge is, uh, as you alluded to, is simply this. Uh, this water comes tumbling down, literally a gift from heaven, and you see the visuals of creeks flowing and rivers running wild and out to the sea, and there lies the problem. It's all running out to the sea, and it's not being captured, and we could spend multiple podcasts talking about why this happens, but the problem is simply this. California historically has not created enough water storage, and this goes back, my goodness, 10, 20, 30 years back when dinosaurs like me were working at California state government. To create capacity, you run afoul of the environmental lobby, plain and simple. If you want to build a dam, if you want to uh, create a reservoir, if you want to uh, expand existing structure. And what I noted in my column was um, the case study of this is a water bond that California passed in 2014, $7.5 billion. In total, about $2.7 billion of which goes into water construction. And what has that done for California? Well, here we are early in 2023 in the sites reservoir as you mentioned, they may break ground on that next year, and it may open if all goes according to schedule by about the year 2030. So, Lee, you're talking about 15 years from you know inception from voters approving a water bond to, to actually getting water filled into a reservoir. And if we look at the vast history of California, we look at the Golden Gate Bridge, the Oakland Bay Bridge built in a matter of a few years. Why, Lee, does it take 15 years to get a reservoir built? Bill, I would I would love to know the answer to that question. Uh, I look back uh, in time a bit, and um, so here's the thumbnail sketch of history. Um, in the last 25 years, so I'm going to go back even further, back to 1996, Proposition 204, 
for those who might remember, it was the Safe, Clean, Reliable Water Supply Act of 1996. Uh, it was a billion. It was a billion dollars. Um, and if we go forward in time, there's another. Uh, there's a total of eight voter-approved water bonds in the last 25 years, which is uh, a grand total of uh, nearly 28 billion dollars in spending. And after researching this, I came to the conclusion that I hope voters never approve another state, another state bond, because the money never is spent. So 20, nearly $28 billion in voter approved bonds, which is future taxes to pay. And 90% of that money over 25 years has not been spent. There's been no there's been no increase in state water conveyance or water storage in a significant way, really since the 1970s. Right. Since uh, really since the 1970s, and this was an issue that uh, Diane Feinstein, Senator Diane Feinstein, brought up a number of years ago. So the weather situation has become ludicrous in the sense that California is subject to drought. It has been forever. That's not that's not an issue of climate change. We live in a semi arid climate. Um, and California is subject to sometimes torrential rains. Right. So it's either floods <laughs> or it becomes a desert um, and nothing is being done about it. And Bill, uh, the short answer to your question is that this money really gets caught up in silly environmental debates. Um, and so nothing, nothing gets done. It's one study after another. And I wish voters knew that 20 years after they voted for, 25 years after they voted for the uh, the Safe, Clean, Reliable Water Supply Act, that they're not getting safe, clean, reliable water supply. Um, it's as simple. It's as simple as that. It's uh, it's a shame. It really boils down to a lack of governance and a lack of responsibility. Um, and at the end of the day, we have. Um, we have about $34 billion in storm damage. That's the latest estimate I've seen. $34 billion in putting that perspective, Bill, um, the state budget of North Carolina, which I believe is the ninth largest state in the country, is roughly $25 billion. So California sustained damage from floods that exceeds the entire annual state budget of the, of the country's ninth largest state. So there you have it. I think, Lee, about $30 billion was about the price tag of the Northridge earthquake back in 1994, which <clears throat> happened actually on this week in 1994, 29 years ago. But that was $1994, Lee. So adjust that for 2023. You know, what's interesting about this situation, and maybe we should segue to the president's visit now, is, um, yes, uh, $30 billion worth of damage. But when you compare or contrast that to an earthquake, and I don't want to minimize or uh, take blithely uh, the suffering people have gone through, but if you go back and look at that earthquake in 1994. Uh, this crippled Los Angeles. And Lee, I don't know if you were in LA at the time when it happened, but you had uh, damage to freeways around the city and just traffic came to a halt and commerce came to a halt and the government had to figure out what to do, the state government in particular. Uh, I was working for Governor Wilson at the time. And uh, what the governor did was he looked at the situation and said, okay, we have to figure out a way to get these, uh, we have to get these roads up as quick as we can. So he 
um, he got very creative. He thought outside the box. He streamlined and suspended contracting regulations, offered construction incentives, which became Lee and Jonathan hugely controversial because one um, one contractor, in particular C.C. Myers, um, just worked night and day to get stuff open and made a lot of money off it. And so there was a lot of blowback saying, well, wait a second, he profited. But I would say, well, you know, he profited, but so the people because he got the roads early. But the point is, <clears throat> The state got very creative in the recovery, and this is what I'm curious about at this point, Lee and Jonathan. The president came out yesterday um, to, uh, as Jonathan mentioned, to uh, the Santa Cruz area, Monterey County, the Capitola Pier in particular. Very curious visit, by the way, for a president. Uh, historically, presidents come out to California, and they just don't do kind of a drop-in and drop-out like Biden did. He he landed at Moffett Airfield in uh, in uh, Mountain View, not far from here in Palo Alto. He choppered over to the site. Did the event, got back in the helicopter, went back to the plane and went home. And I thought, well, this is odd because usually Lee and Jonathan, a president, will go up to San Francisco and hobnob, raise some money, soothe and ruffle feathers with donors, maybe do a policy event elsewhere in California, you know, cover his political bases. But they got Biden in and out of the state pretty fast. Um thinking this, a friend of mine who's a doctor gave me an interesting theory. She said, well, you're dealing with an 80-year-old president, and maybe if you get him up early in the morning, put him on a plane to California, do the event, get him back on the plane and get him home at night and tucked in bed, that really kind of gets rid of the jet lag. So maybe maybe that's part of dealing with the 80-year-old president. But anyway, sorry to ramble here, but you know, the president didn't say much in the event other than we've got your back, Jack, and uh, we will help out California any way we can. So that's the good news. That means there'll be money coming in from Washington. But the bad news again, Lee and Jonathan, Lee, I want to get your thoughts on this, is uh, how are you going to do this cleanup, this rebuild in a swift, efficient way like you did in 1994, especially when we know that one thing, Sacramento politicians, the people who be controlling these purse strings, they got a lot of friends in labor. Yeah, they have a lot of friends in labor, and that's the $64,000 question. So with a lot of friends in labor, there's going to be an enormous payoff to labor. Uh, so it's going to be expensive, Bill. <laughs> it's going to be very expensive. But what's even worse is I suspect that it will take an awful long time to get this done. So, Bill, you mentioned uh, you mentioned work with Pete Wilson and how quickly that really is state emergency, um, the devastated Southern California, how quickly that was resolved, how quickly the freeways were rebuilt and the overpasses and bridges were rebuilt. Um, Bill, wasn't that done in just a matter of months? A couple of months. It was said it would take over a year or two and uh, done it about 66 days, I think. And in fact, we got into this big, we got into a big uh, PR fight with the Clinton administration over who'd show up and take credit for reopening the freeways. And we actually slipped in and opened them the night before they came in. But yeah, it only took a couple of months, but this shows that actually you can take government and put it to a creative use lead. But you know, the other thing coming out of this, which which maybe uh, you, you'd like to reflect on, uh, we're back into this issue that we see with fires. And in fire, in fire parlance, it's called WUI, which is uh, wilderness urban uh, interface. Uh, but you know, what's interesting about the floods is um, whereas fires start in remote areas of California, you know, flood water is everywhere in California and it just hits all regions and it hits the coast and it hits inland and it hits the Central Valley and it hits the northern part of the state. But it does get into Lee and Jonathan, this question of California's living arrangement. If you see the pictures from where the president went, or maybe Lee, you go close to your home in Montecito where people, you know, got, you know, had to evacuate because of mudslides, which happened a few years ago too. It's a chance for California to start looking at its living arrangement. And here, Lee, I'm not sure exactly how government proceeds because, you know, part of the game in California is you spend a lot of money to get a fabulous house with a wonderful view of the ocean. But 
what are we doing? That cliff is going to start to recede. And what we're going to do if you're $17 million home in Montecito, if you're Harry and Megan and you have to evacuate because every five to six years, mud comes your way. So do you think, Lee, maybe there's an opportunity here for California state and local government to look at the bigger picture of livability or am I just, uh, or my cold meds kind of kicking me too hard this morning? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Bill, it's interesting. The California faces just um, so many fundamental issues now that are the result of just decades of, of just complete neglect. And, you know, so Bill, to, Put this in perspective, um, people live on the coast because they, they want to live on the coast. The weather's mild, it's beautiful. Um, and if you look back 100 years ago, um, Los Angeles had the most advanced and sophisticated water capture and flood control system, um, according to experts in the world. Right. That was 100 years ago. Um, so 100 years ago, LA wasn't suffering from flood from flood problems because they captured the water, they channeled it away from living areas. Um, what LA had 100 years ago um, is probably better than what we have now in a lot of areas such as Santa Cruz, where, where President Biden touched down, which I think wasn't really more than really for a photo op. Um, where I live just south of Santa Barbara, uh, in Montecito, uh, I, I live in what I do call the slums of Montecito, <laughs> not where my neighbors, uh, Harry and Megan, live. Um, but uh, Governor Newsom came down here for photo ops, uh, along with 80 of the National Guard to clear out uh, debris basins um, that filled up. And, you know, Bill, interestingly enough, during the worst of the storm, um, you know, my, my youngest son's school called up and said, because of the storm, we're going to we're going to end school early. So I drove, you know, I drove out to I drove out to pick him up and I'm driving from my home and I'm thinking, you know, this looks exactly like it did. It was literally was five years ago to the day, Bill, that um, that there was mudslides in my community that ended up killing 23 of my neighbors. Um, and that was largely because of government policy mistakes. Uh, debris basins had not been cleaned out for probably 20 years. Um, the LA Times did an investigative series of articles about this. They have drone footage that shows about a 19-foot oak tree growing in one of the debris basins. Uh, oak trees don't grow all that fast. <laughs> right. Um, and Newsom came out um, and, um, you know, Bill, I just have to tell you, it was almost surreal. It was not surprisingly a bunch of photo ops with other Democratic politicians who were cozying up to him and saying, Governor, thank you for coming to aid us in our hour of need. Well, well, that's what government is for. The government's, government is to protect people, which it doesn't do a very good job of anymore. And Bill, what was the most surreal about this is that 23 of my neighbors were killed five years ago. And you know what the governor talked about? He talked about food insecurity. His speech was about food insecurity. (laughs) And he was standing at a location where roughly 23 people died five years ago. And he just seemed completely tone deaf as to what was going on and as to what government should be doing to protect his residents. That tells me, Lee, that his body was in California. His mind was in Davos at the World Economic Forum, because that's where you talk about food insecurity and climate change. And I don't know if you saw Al Gore's rant at Davos the other day about uh, climate apocalypse and tying it to rain here and so forth. But, you know, one mission of government, though, Lee, is to get out of these sort of Einstein situations. Einstein's definition of insanity is what? the Doing the same failed thing over and over again, expecting different results. And again, the question getting back to Montecito and other parts of California is, 
Newsom will not be governor of California five years now because term limits. So will the next California governor be going to Montecito and doing another event then? Or can the state find ways to change this? But now we're getting the question, leave the government controlling where people live and how they live. And it's a very difficult thing. But I do look at the rain thing and I I, I see two things here. The first thing is the issue of insurance. Uh, this always comes up when you have huge disasters in California after the earthquakes in 94 it became a question of having uh, earthquake insurance if you own a house. And here in California, we're going to have a conversation about flood insurance. I did a little homework here is what I discovered that very few Californians actually have flood insurance itself. I don't know, Lee, if you uh, have it your house or not. Um, the uh, California households can apply for standalone policies through the Federal National Flood Insurance Program. Exactly 1.33% of California households have this. Here's where it gets tricky. Um, you get this insurance because you live in what is called a special flood hazard area. These are, Lee and Jonathan, uh, based on FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, looking at so-called 100-year floodplains. So here's the problem, plain and simple. You are uh, asking people to get flood insurance based on uh, living in a 100-year flood plane, which means by definition, there's a 1% chance each year you're going to get a flood. Um, FEMA needs to redo its maps and revisit flooding in California, I think, because we're seeing that flooding is much more vast than 100-year flood plane. So that's, that's problem number one. But problem number two, Lee and Jonathan, is uh, now government getting to work and working efficiently. And this takes us to the issue of potholes. Uh, Lee, I don't know what the roads look like where you are right now, but I can just tell you driving around here in Palo Alto and getting out on highways, uh, you have to be very vigilant right now because there can just be a pothole in any, any corner of the road that you're on right now. Um, the good news, most Californians probably don't know this, if you want to call it good news, you hit a pothole on a freeway or a highway, and you can apply to Caltrans for reimbursement up to $10,000. But Lee and Jonathan, here's the question. This government's notorious for not uh, for not working very efficiently. You're talking to somebody who is still waiting for his $200 gas, gas rebate. I don't think that's ever going to show up. Uh, we know all the problems that uh, came with uh, unemployment claims during COVID. So Lee, your thoughts on the confidence of people applying for pothole relief in California and actually the government delivering? I'm going to go out and buy a beater <laughs> and I'm going to start, I'm going to start making a laser line for those potholes <laughs> to get my $10,000. Um, you know, Bill, interestingly enough, the state by far has the highest gasoline taxes, um, state gas taxes in the country. That's supposed to be for repairing and maintaining roads. <clears throat> California has, uh, despite having the highest gas state gas taxes in the country, we have um, either the 49th or the 50th. We're the 49th or 50th in road conditions. So, Bill, um, it's it, it's it was bad, and it's just gotten a lot worse. Um, about three miles from my house, up close towards the mountains, uh, I mean, there's a complete sinkhole. So uh, there's a road closed. I don't know how long that road is going to be closed because. Um, Five years ago, when the mudslides occurred and they took out uh, they took out some bridges, those roads were closed for um, roughly three years, three years to rebuild uh, bridges that were about twenty feet wide and about forty feet long. Three years to rebuild. Um, so, Bill, when you talk about efficiency of government. The only solution I see is that for is for is for voters to to just throw up their hands and say this is unacceptable. We we have a state budget that's over twenty thousand dollars per household. Where is it going? What is it being used for? Why aren't we getting our money's worth? We need 
not just better politicians. We need infinitely better politicians who have some common sense, who can prioritize, who can see past their own personal, social, cultural, and political agendas and figure out what do people need and what do they really want out of government. And it's not what we're seeing right now. It's not waiting years to have a road rebuilt. It's what Pete Wilson did 30 years ago, uh, 25, 30 years ago, to, to essentially rebuild the free, much of the freeway system in uh, Southern California in um, two months. That's yep. what people want. And uh, it's just remarkably sad how go- California government has devolved in that it, time. It also shows you, Lee, the, um, the the downside to living in the moment and doing stunt politics, which was what the legislature and the governor did last year with their uh, gasoline rebates to California taxpayers. Um Gasoline prices are down about $2, I think, uh, from their peak of last year. So the crisis is not quite what it was. And I imagine most ca- more Californians in 2023 would like to have $400 or $500 and $200 to address pothole repairs than they would maybe um, maybe money back from gasoline. So uh, there we go. So, um, yeah, so California goes to the rain. The final thing I note about the rain is, uh, and again, it ties to our conversation here, and it's just this cycle that California lives in. It's to, to those who've overreacted and said, my God, this rain is just unbelievable. It has rained in California before. I could take you back to when I worked in Sacramento and had uh, two state-of-the-state speeches explode on me because we had to change them overnight because we were dealing with floods and crises and so forth. Uh, I remember going into Governor Wilson's office and uh, an aide came in and uh, brought him a denim jacket, which he wore when he went out to look at disaster. We called it the disaster jacket. And so Governor and aide said, Governor, we're going on the road today. And the governor looked at the aide and said, let me guess, Guerneville. And <clears throat> sure enough, he was right. Guerneville is a small town, about 4,000 people in, um, on the Russian River in Sonoma. It's very scenic. But here's the problem. The Russian River floods like a mother. When it rains like this, it gets up to 30, 35 feet and Guerneville gets drowned. And so you go in there and you see the visuals of people getting rescued by boats and so forth. But nothing changes. Um the river recedes, the people go back into their homes, and years later it floods again. And so it's a cycle you go into. And you can say, well, why not why not build some, why not dam the Russian River and do something about that? But now you get into the uh into the economics of doing um water res- uh, preservation in California, uh, storage, I should say. Uh, it's an economic calculation, Lee and Jonathan. You calculate how much it would cost to build a dam or build a reservoir versus the number of people impacted. And to save 4,000 people in Guerneville, you can't justify a billion dollar project. So in some regards, California is stuck. But again, it's a cycle California cannot escape in terms of damage and not to be too morbid here, but God forbid we get a big earthquake like 1994, 1989. And I say this living about five miles from the San Andreas Fault here. Um, You're going to see very much the same visuals as you saw in 1994, Lee and Jonathan, with freeways coming down and people inconvenienced and so forth. But the question is, does California learn these experiences and come back and, as the president said, build back better? Or do we just build back and just brace ourselves for the next hit? Well, Bill, um, you know, it reminds me, uh, fingers crossed, big earthquake doesn't come. Um, But if it does, uh, Bill, what are the chances uh, that some politician is going to blame it on climate change? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Bill, do you remember the, um, I mean, this is going back a long time, but uh, I think it's around, it it was the the 92 election when Perot was running. There is a Saturday Night Live skit. Uh, and I think it was Dana Carvey, um, in my humble opinion, fabulous comedian who was impersonating Perot. In my opinion, he, uh, Dana Carvey did a great did a great Ross Perot. 
And he was, and there was a, a campaign speech Dana Carvey was giving as Ross Perot. And he said something like, you know what? If I get you 3% growth, you give me a billion dollars. If I get you 4% growth, you give me $2 billion. Heck, a monkey could get you 2% growth. I almost feel like when it comes to politicians, start giving them incentive pay. If you can build, if you can build a new dam, here's how much we're going to pay you collectively in the legislature. I sometimes think that's the only way we're going to get anything reasonable done in California, given the current state of the political sensibilities of legislators. They just don't get it. Yeah. Lee, let's talk about your California on your mind column this week. It's about San Francisco's rapid population decline. The city has lost 6.3% of its residents between 2019 and 2021, quote, a rate of decline larger than any two-year period in Detroit's history and unprecedented among any major U.S. city. Um, Detroit has had its own uh, precipitous decline uh, since 1950. Uh, We have discussed this exodus from California in previous episodes, Lee, but can you describe why this drop has been so dramatic relative to the rest of California? Jonathan, uh, it's enormous. Um, so I compare San Francisco's 6.3% population loss, uh, according to census data, uh, between 19, uh, 2019 and 21, um, bigger than any city uh, within the country. And then to put it in perspective, I compared it to uh, Detroit, which, which had nearly 2 million people in 1950, down to about 650,000 people today. Um, Detroit never lost, never had population losses, anything close. Is San Francisco 6.3%. And you know, the reason it's so important now is because of who is leaving. So who the people who are leaving um, are not middle-income households or low-income households who have just thrown up their hands and said, I can't afford to live here. That's not the major group of people who left in these last two years. It is high-income households um, with median incomes probably around $250,000. And as they left, San Francisco, uh, the city of San Francisco lost $7 billion in net income. So that's a $7 billion loss, even after taking into account those who moved into San Francisco over that same period of time. So San Francisco lost about 60,000 tax returns. Uh, And with those people went $7 billion in income on net. And, you know, where did they go? Well, the richest went to, and perhaps this is not surprising, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Um, a very expensive, uh, very beautiful location, famous ski resort. Uh, The median income of those moving from San Francisco to Jackson Hole, uh, somewhere close to $600,000 annual income. Um, So, and then other highly, highly, you know, very, very productive, high income taxpayers from California moved to Lake Tahoe, another, another ski destination. Um, many others moved to Palm Beach, Florida, um, you know, Cal no state income tax. So it really is uh, who is leaving and who is in, and the people who are leaving are a very, very high income, income people. Um, and you know, uh, Jonathan, interestingly enough, when we lose those people, and some of those are, ta- uh, are tech workers, this is having repercussions because San Francisco's downtown is emptying out. 
So right. back in the day before the pandemic in 2019, San Francisco's downtown was incredibly vibrant, economic powerhouse. The office vacancy rate was only 4% in 2019, which I, might have been the lowest in the country among major cities. That office vacancy rate is now seven times higher at 27%. Um, and the, uh, the column appeared today on the Hoover website, and it includes a link to a, a newspaper article that includes photos of downtown taken by one of San Francisco's tech entrepreneurs. So he spent a week, Monday through Friday, walking around downtown the city, taking photos, and these were posted in a, um, in a newspaper article. And if you look at those photos, uh, this does not look like a downtown, a major, uh, the downtown of a major city <laughs> on a workday. Uh, it looks like the downtown of a major city on a national holiday or a Sunday. That is just how empty San Francisco has become. And those who are remaining in San Francisco, at least private businesses, have become extremely uh, concerned about this. They've looked to the local, uh, you know, they've looked to city government for a solution. Given the given given the state of uh, affairs within the city's board of supervisors, nothing is coming. So what they did was they got together and they they put it together some money and they hired some consultants to come up with a plan to revitalize downtown. And within this 143-page plan. Um, the consultants had some ideas for trying to figure out what to do with downtown San Francisco now that so many people have left. But, you know, Jonathan, at the end of the day, this is really San Francisco centric and it really boils down to um, a grossly failed governance on the part of the city supervisors. San Francisco has been taken over. Uh, by illegal drugs, uh, by drug gangs, um, crime, uh, particularly break-in type of crimes um, is off the charts. Um, and without addressing those problems, there's no bringing back San Francisco. Um, and Jonathan, um, you know, we, 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 should, we need to bring Bill here in a second. Um, but, you know, uh, what I just found just incredibly depressing is that despite what's going on in San Francisco, um, and this is a city that spends about $20,000 per, uh, per household uh, in city spending. The city supervisors don't seem to understand the severity of what's going on. Uh, they seem to think that the loss of economic activity in downtown is not substantial. And to give you an idea of just how bad uh, the decision-making is at the state, at the city, at the city level, um, there is a Whole Foods now owned by Amazon uh, wanted to go into the uh, Polk Street neighborhood, um, relatively lower income area, open a Whole Foods. Um, and the city supervisor said no. Uh, they initially said, we well, if you're going to build a grocery store, then you better include affordable housing. Now, Whole Foods doesn't do affordable housing. They do grocery stores. But Whole Foods agreed, okay. We'll build a Whole Foods, and then we'll build another. Uh, we'll we'll build another story, and we can squeeze in eight units of housing, given the footprint of what the of what the uh, the store was going to be. City supervisors said no. So Whole Foods, so Whole Foods and Amazon packed up and left. That opportunity is now gone. And Jonathan, guess guess what has happened to that location? 
Well, that was five years ago. The location is still empty, is still in disrepair. It is frequently broken into, most likely for drug use or prostitution. And this is really emblematic of who of, of, of the people within the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. They simply just don't get it. I understand that there, um, there are some plans to try to revitalize the downtown. What have those, uh, what have those entailed? Well, you know, there's, um, if, if, if what, and the, the article has a link to this plan, which is, which is 143 pages. So they have an awful lot of ideas, um, including things like, um, having public performances and events, um, including outdoor plays and, um, creating new public open spaces and walking areas with art. Um, and these are all great ideas, but none of these things will ever make a difference if San Francisco doesn't choose to clean itself up. Um, and given the, you know, given the, uh, the ease of use of, um, of today's search engines and, uh, and Adobe, I actually, I, I, I did a search through that 143 page document and I looked for the words uh, crime, homeless, homelessness, drugs, and opioids. I typed in those words. Not one of those words ever came up on that plan. Uh, interestingly enough, um, there are a couple of euphemisms such as uh, cleanliness and safety. Um, but, um, you know, sadly, a private a private business group had to go had to go and take the first step to try to figure out, you know, Rome is burning. We got to put out the fire. Um, and yet, this board of the board of supervisors are twiddling their thumbs and 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 worrying about their own personal, social, and cultural agendas that are just so far off the charts of most people, um, at least most people that I know of. Um, so will San Francisco go the way of Detroit? Um, I see nothing that's going to stop it from declining um, in the near term. And this and, and the decline won't be stopped until voters make a change in terms of who they elect to uh, the city supervisors. Yeah, so that was my thought, Lee, just what the city can do to try to bring back office space to bring back businesses. Uh, you mentioned people moving to Jackson Hole, Palm Beach, and so forth. Let's assume they stay there because that's, you know, financially they can make it work. It's a lifestyle thing for them. Maybe they like the open space, the non-California existence, and maybe because they're doing very well, it means they're remote workers, and so they don't have to be back in San Francisco. So I think the question, though, Lee, is if you're the city and if you're the state and you want to actually bring investment back into the city, how do you go about it? And we can talk about cleaning up the city, but I'm curious, Lee, on economic standpoint, what, if anything, the state and the city can be doing, because you're a business coming in. Yes, you're looking at quality of life. Uh, you're looking at the housing situation. Um, maybe the city can get creative. For example, I was just looking at Chicago not too long ago. And if you go through downtown Chicago right now, you see a transformation, a lot of uh, skyscrapers that used to be just purely office, like the old Sears Tower is now, I think, called the Willis Tower. And it's mixed use, it's business and retail and so forth. So perhaps the city can look at kind of converting that, you know, mixed use, if you will. But the question really, Lee, is if if I want to be a business and come into San Francisco, yeah, I can find plenty of places to, to you know, hang my shingle. But the city and the state have to sell me on it being worth my while to come to San Francisco. So from an economist standpoint, just in terms of tax and regulation, what can the state and the city be doing right now? The city really shot itself in the foot from the perspective that they had this remarkable tech powerhouse. And 
And what the city did was not completely get in the way of people who wanted to create high-tech startups. And that's what San Francisco is doing, was creating high-tech startups. Um, so that's what San Francisco was really, really good at. Um, there's no reason why they can't make that happen again with the right policies. But that John, Abel, they seem to have kind of given up on that. The mayor, London Breed, was talking about bringing in um, bioengineering and biotech firms. Okay, um, but if 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 they were to do that, um, the office buildings would have to be completely ret retrofitted. It's not as if they have they have high technology labs and, and equipment in those in those buildings. So San Francisco is a location that people have always loved for uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I don't see any reason why it can't return, but then the, the first order business is really the fundamentals, which are cleaning itself up, making it a place where businesses are not going to feel like they're going to get shaken down from more and more taxes every other year. Um, it remains, it can't, it can still be a very popular tourist de destination and travel destination, uh, can still be a financial destination, but they've got to stop the bleeding. And there's really only one way to do that. And that's to really reverse course on what, on essentially not just accepting, but promoting illegal drug use, not pursuing criminal activity. Um, Bill, you know, just today, uh, I noticed that, um, uh, Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook, uh, has just announced they're going to be subletting. Um, I think it might be half a half a million square feet of office space. It's their decision is is is, an, is really enough just to move that twenty seven percent vacancy rate. I think the vacancy rate goes up to twenty eight percent with Meta's decision uh, to sublet. Um, nearly half a million square feet of office space. So um, I think the first order of business, they've, they've just got to stop the bleeding and figure out how to do it. It's not hard to figure out how to, figuring out how to do it is not really the issue. They've got to figure out how to get it done. And um, unfortunately, they have a board of supervisors who are more interested in talking about defunding the police and abolishing rent and abolishing prisons uh, and uh, abolishing private enterprise um, rather than figuring out, hey, the city is collapsing. <laughs> Hop off your high horse and get something done. Yeah, there's one other challenge, Lee. That's <clears throat> if you want to bring in a business from some other state, Texas, Florida, let's say, just for the sake of argument, you're going to have to sell them on the fact that you're in San Francisco, California, and you're now as a business at the mercy of the local electorate. I'll give you an example of this. Back in 2018, Proposition C, which was meant to address homelessness, attacks on businesses. Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, was the driver behind this. Got 60% support. It went through. Businesses got hit with the tax. Tech community hated it. Jack Dorsey from Twitter and others did not like the idea, but your business in San Francisco, you're kind of a sitting duck in that regard. So, I'm not saying that you exempt businesses from taxes, but part of the trick of getting people to come and invest is the climate in which they're going to live. And if I'm a businessman and thinking, my gosh, they're going to slam a tax on me every two years when people go to the ballot here, I don't want to do business here. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, businesses have to feel like they're not going to get shaken down every other, every other day for more taxes. And, you know, this can only happen if you have a functional board of supervisors with some sense of fiscal responsibility and a plan. 
So they're going to have to do an awful lot to reverse course here. Uh, and the problem I see is that the Board of Supervisors simply won't accept the failure that they've created within the city. Uh, the Mayor London Breed um, is, is liberal, but compared to uh, the median person on the Board of Supervisors, <laughs> she looks incredibly right to the right politically. Mm-hmm. Right now, uh, her approval ratings are very, very low because of what's going on within the city. I think she has a much better understanding of what needs to be done compared to the Board of Supervisors. As someone who, uh, you know, I, I grew up just loving San Francisco. I'd love to visit there. Um, I love to, uh, as an adult, I'd love to take vacations there. Um, remarkable culture, remarkable history, remarkable restaurants, sightseeing. It's an amazing place. Um, so it's it, uh, it's it pains me to see what's happened within the city. Um, it is what it is. It, it, it can be saved, but common sense has to prevail. And, and San Francisco finds itself in this situation because common sense uh, was a Voltaire who said common sense is not so common. common Voltaire would have a field day uh, if you were to look at San Francisco politicians and the policies that they implement. That's well said. And maybe leaders just have to sit down and genuflect and think, you know, what has become of our city. And I think a good example of this, Lee and Jonathan, is the video which most of America has seen in the past <clears throat> couple of weeks. And that is the uh, gentleman uh, who runs an art gallery in San Francisco. And the videos of him standing outside his gallery. And he has a water hose and he is hosing down a homeless woman who is camped outside his art gallery. Uh, this is jarring footage. Um, it is subhuman. And in, in no way am I excusing what he did. But what's very curious, uh, as I'm in the San Francisco media market, Market. I watched cover of the coverage of this. Uh, talking to local activists, uh, how many local activists just are not outraged by what he did? Um, and I think part of the outrage ties into uh, a comment made by a city supervisor who was asked about this incident. He said, "This is sad. She's a member of our community. Everybody knows her. They love her. They know where she hangs out." And I think therein, Lee and Jonathan, lies lies the problem. You're this fellow running this art gallery, and this woman is camped out outside of your outside of your gallery, and she's a hot mess, and she has a hot mess around her. And this gentleman feels he has no recourse but to hose her down because the city is not dealing with the problem. And so, you know, this is homelessness in California, and God forbid this escalates. I just I saw this incident. And I thought to myself, it's kind of a minor miracle in the past five years that nobody has done anything vigilante like to homeless people in California out of frustration. But you know, Lee, as we talk about trying to turn that lovely city around, I think this is part of the problem. Just you know, on display when you know the average citizen just can't get help from the government. The government just allows the status quo. And it's homelessness and it's drugs and it's petty crime and the list goes on of things. But you know, at some point, city leaders have to say enough is enough and realize that they. They are as much a part of the problem as anything else. Yeah, absolutely. The, that that footage, the video footage, Bill, you referred to, uh, is really shocking. And city supervisors have essentially created a dysfunctional society. Functional societies are ones in which rules are obeyed, private property uh, is is protected, um, crime is prosecuted. People have a sense of responsibility. And you look at people living in San Francisco and business rents, uh, they have come down an awful lot because of the vacancy statistics we just cited, but rents remain very high. Business costs are through the roof. Um, and they are trying to, they're trying to make a buck. 
Uh, and most of them are not making the kind of profits that uh, Jack Dorsey, uh, Jack Dorsey's organizations make or uh, Mark Zuckerberg's organizations make. They're just trying to stay afloat. And they're incredibly frustrated because rules aren't being followed. The society has become dysfunctional. And sadly, Bill, this is the result of city supervisors not doing not doing their jobs. And you know, watching this video brought back to to me like I, I thoughts about the the wild wild west where where everything goes uh, lawlessness. People take people take things into their own hands. Um, and this is uh, yeah, this 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 video has gone viral. Um, and you've got a city supervisor saying. Well, this is one of our. This is one of our community members. Okay, great. One of our community members, but uh, that person doesn't get to camp out on the sidewalk. Um, that's not what's. That's not how a functional society operates. So, yeah, it's the it's the idea that a normal living situation is a woman camped out in squalor outside of my art gallery, and that's no, that's not how society operates. That's not how society operates. Um, San Francisco has, um, in my opinion, the worst homelessness problem in the country, not just because of the numbers, but because so many have um, just awful emotional and, 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 and mental issues and uh, so much drug addiction. And these are people um, that either they become a member of society with the, with the attendant responsibilities that go with that, um, or they've got to they've got to be part of a treatment program. Uh, it's as simple as that. And um, just letting this continue and persist uh, is, is something that the city supervisors continue to do. And um, you know, Bill, what we've seen in San Francisco over the last couple of years is some. I think I think some change in the tide of politics. Um, you saw the the uh, the school. You, you saw was it three school board members. I believe last year who were voted out of office, uh, who just had totally off the wall, bizarre political views. Yep. And, and Chase of booting the, and Chase of booting the DA got tossed. And Chase of booting the, yeah. So, so maybe we'll start seeing more sensible, uh, more sensible choices when voters go to, uh, to vote, but, um, but, but Lee also I mean, more sensible, more sensible choices in government. We'll, we'll close out with this. Uh, the issue of reparations is both a statewide topic in California. There is the, uh, nine member reparations task force, which is supposed to re report the legislature at some point in 2023, recommending state level reparations, um, quote unquote, enduring economic effects of slavery and racism. So if you're a descendant of slaves and living in California in theory, you're going to get paid. But Lee and Jonathan, they're also debating this in Cal in San Francisco as well. Uh, the city has an African-American reparations committee, and it's not looking at slavery, but it's looking at the war on drugs. And here's what the reparations committee wants to do. It wants to give $5 million for eligible residents. And if you're eligible uh, as follows, you have to be at least 18 years old when the committee's proposal is enacted. You have to identify as either black or African-American on public documents for at least a decade. You also have to prove you were born in San Francisco between 1940 and 1996, have lived in the city for at least 13 years, and have either been incarcerated or descended from someone incarcerated during the war on drugs. So Lee and Jonathan, this, you know, this may play in San Francisco. I think if uh, a reparations matter were put on the state wide ballot, I think it would get crushed. But this gets back to my thoughts about people wanting to move to San Francisco and set up shop outside of San Francisco, outside of California. You look at this and you think, my goodness, what are these people doing?
they just don't get it. <laughs> I mean, they, they just don't get it. So Bill, I did a couple of quick calculations so that $5 million per person to African-Americans within San Francisco. Now I didn't take into account incarceration because um, right. I just, I don't have that data. But uh, if, if you do the calculations for every black person in uh, San Francisco, Bill, that works out to about a quarter of a million dollars per household for San Franciscan household, about a quarter million dollars. So if San Francisco wants to become Detroit, there's no better way than to adopt this policy. And I wonder how, I wonder how the, um, all of those Asian uh, descended households in San Francisco would feel about being taxed to pay for this. Well, this is the question with reparations in general. So let's say that the state wants to offer reparations to descendants of slavery. Fine. Um, they'll get money. Uh, but let's look at victimization within California. Who else might be entitled to reparations? Asians. Asians for both Lee and Jonathan, uh, their treatment during the gold rush and uh, and savagery in the 19th century. Uh, Asians with uh, their treatment of the Japanese during uh, World War II. Uh, who else? Latinos, historically victims of all kinds of discrimination. Housing, for example. Armenians might want to make a claim. Um, gays, lesbians. I mean, just, you know, the list goes on to people who could all claim victimization. So, you know, the state could just, you know, just go bankrupt doing reparations on people. But again, it's the message to the rest of the world. Just is California really serious or is California just going to engage in all this, all this kind of frivolity or not? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bill, it's a, uh, San Francisco is the poster child for, um, Killing the goose that lays the golden eggs. Um, the, go <laughs> the goose is very ill right now. Um, let's hope that let's let's hope the goose comes back. Right, gentlemen. Let's talk a little football. Uh, this Sunday, the Dallas Cowboys will be traveling up to Santa Clara to Levi Stadium this Sunday uh, for the NFC Divisional Playoff matchup. San Francisco is a four-point favorite to win the game, uh, which is somewhat nostalgic because the two teams dominated football in the 1990s. Um, San Francisco last. Won a Super Bowl in 1995, and Dallas uh, won a Super Bowl. Last won a Super Bowl in 1996. So it's been, so it's been almost 30 years. The Cowboys are also an interesting story because, despite the great migration out of California to places like Texas, they still maintain their practice facilities near you, uh, Lee, in Oxnard, uh, or just south of you. Given temperature-controlled enclosures in today's sports age, why are the Cowboys even still in California, Bill? Well, uh, because you tend to practice outside during the summer. Um, a lot of players, you like to be outside doing drills and all that. And I don't know how much time you guys have logged in Texas in August. Uh, you don't want to be outside in Texas in August doing football drills. So uh, decades, and I think the Cowboys have been coming out to California for over 40 years now, Lee and John have been to Southern California. 40 years ago, um, they... They discovered that, guess what? Temperatures are about 20 degrees cooler in California. Take that, climate activists. Uh, so we're going to you know, go easy on our fellows by training out in California. And yeah, this caught my attention because, first of all, uh, Lee, it's just the irony of the situation. Here is a Texas business, the Cowboys coming out to California to do business. And unlike other Texas operations, they maintain a foothold Um in uh in california as well uh there's just a lot of nostalgia here as well because uh again i came to california in the 1990s and the 49ers and cowboys really were i guess the steelers would have been as well but really were two of the glamour franchises back then and it's funny um they neither one has um 
been in the promised land, as Jonathan mentioned, since the mid-1990s. Uh, this came to a head. Uh, people love to, uh, to bash the Dallas Cowboys because they're America's team and I guess because of Texas are an inviting target. But uh, after the actress Jennifer Lopez got engaged to Ben Affleck, somebody put out this very clever meme on the internet and it uh, regarding Super Bowl rings and championships. And the title was Number of Rings Since 1997, J-Lo 6, Dallas 0. So... <laughs> But anyway, it's just it's going to be a really entertaining game, I think, on Sunday. The sun might be out here. Goodness, uh, uh, no rain. And it just might be a reminder of just, uh, you know, something pleasant in California. Despite the weather, despite all we complain about California, this could just be good old fashioned fun. Yeah. And Bill, you know, with um, if I was a betting man, I think I would uh, take the Niners and the points. Um, Dak Prescott, the Cowboys quarterback, I think he's thrown interceptions in the last, maybe the last eight straight games, um, home field advantage. So I think the Niners are looking pretty good there. Um, but, you know, Bill, it's interesting. Um, the NFL is um, is really the poster child of socialism within the United States. Um, about two-thirds of the revenue generated within the NFL is shared equally across teams. So you have polarizing owners such as Jerry Jones, um, who's the owner of the Cowboys, um, you know, very bombastic in the media all the time. Um, and I think he's somewhat of a lightning rod for the distaste that a lot of people have for the Cowboys. He's always complaining about how his franchise creates so much wealth for the NFL. And then you've got you've got franchises such uh, such as uh, Jacksonville, for example, or Carolina, um, who typically have losing teams, who typically, who don't have the fan base, uh, who are small market enterprises. So the Cowboys, uh, yeah. So, are, uh, so Bill, what do you, what, you think one of, you think one of these teams is going to have a chance uh, at getting that ring? Yeah. I think the winner of this game may very well end up in the Super Bowl. I don't sure if they will beat um the um if it's kansas city i'm not sure they could beat kansas city but i think this is maybe the super bowl uh game watch from the nsc side uh <clears throat> by the way those people listening to this uh familiar with the hoover institution to answer the first question you'll have about all this no condoleezza rice does not want to be the next nfl commissioner <laughs> it's uh i <clears throat> i give talks across california and uh condi questions always come up lee and jonathan they come up in one of two forms either why doesn't she run for office why does she run for president number two does she really want to be the nfl commissioner and uh I've asked her this a couple of times, just jokingly, and she just kind of shakes her head and just says, no, no, thank you. And she has a stake in the Denver Broncos anyway, so I guess she'd have to give that up. She did. But uh, no, our director is very wise and I think wise enough to stay away. Being a commissioner in sports right now is not fun, if you haven't noticed. No, no, it's not. I think she'd do a great job. Uh, the Broncos the, the Broncos uh, equity position would have to go into a blind trust at a minimum. Um, I do think she'd do a, I think I do think she'd do a fabulous job. I hope she doesn't take it because we need her at Hoover. Yes, agreed. Thank you very much, gentlemen. This has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thanks, fellas. Thanks, thanks, guys. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. If you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle, our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. And Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore O'Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mervoides sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. 
This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.